0: John 8, verse 51. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. My friends, was there ever a promise more bold than that? Was ever a claim quite extravagant as this? There in the temple precincts in the company of Jewish individuals and uh, religious leaders jesus says i am telling you the absolute truth if anyone keeps my word he shall never see death and if you will never see death then it follows doesn't it you will have everlasting life i've just quoted from this verse in john chapter 8 but the Background to this actually goes way back into chapter 7. The brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ had gone up to the Jewish feast of tabernacles. They had gone up without uh, Jesus. Jesus himself would follow later, not uh, publicly, but in private. And the buzz of conversation surrounding this Jesus was quite remarkable. John actually tells us that even his own brothers did not believe in him. Interesting, isn't it? How close people can be to the Lord Jesus Christ, how they can be exposed to the things that he said and to consider the works that he's done. And yet remain in unbelief. And here in John chapter 7 and 8, opinion is divided on Jesus at opposite ends of the spectrum. Some people were saying he's a good man. Others were saying definitely not. He's just trying to lead everybody astray with uh, misinformation, with disinformation. With malinformation. You know, friends, there's nothing new under the sun. It was still happening 2,000 years ago. In actual fact, the response of the people to Jesus is uh, usually quite extreme. You know, for example, in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, some of them said, you know, why don't we make him a king? And before you can draw a breath, others were saying, no, don't make him a king. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And here we are 2,000 years further on, and the response of people to the Lord Jesus Christ in this third decade of the 21st century is still quite extreme. And here you are today for this uh, baptism, this baptismal service for uh, our brother Reuben. And you're being confronted afresh with the words and with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, these words and claims, they demand a response. You know, it's simply not possible to ignore Jesus of Nazareth. Now, to assist you in this, I want to give you the big picture. I've just given you a text from John 8, verse 51. But that comes in a context, obviously. You know, not simply the context of the surrounding verses, but the context of the chapter, the context of the surrounding chapters, the context of the gospel and of John itself and indeed the context of the whole bible. So I don't want you I don't want you to miss uh, the the action here. I don't want you to miss the activity. I don't want you to miss the the drama or the force of what is going on specifically within the gospel of John. And maybe I don't know By God's grace, this might even be a stimulus for some of you to read through the Gospel of John for yourselves. John chapter 1, the prologue, the first 14 verses, sets the scene, the staggering scene, the claim that God became a man. My friends, that should certainly hit you with a force, that God the Creator the one who holds the fiery, or very breath in his hand. God broke into this scene of time and he became a man. And when he begins his public ministry, John the Baptist points to Jesus and he says, Behold, look at this, consider this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in pointing to Jesus and saying that, he was drawing attention to his Jewish hearers that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices when lambs and bulls and sheep and goats were slaughtered on an altar. And not one of them could ever uh, take away sin. That's why they had to be repeated. And so they're waiting, they're anticipating a Messiah, one who would come as a substitute. And John points to Jesus and he says, There's the one. This is the one who will take away the, the sins of uh, the world. And as the gospel unfolds, John the Apostle presents a series of proofs or evidences to back up the claim that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. So you go into uh, John chapter 2 and you have the wedding At Cana of Galilee. The first sign that Jesus did. We often say it was the turning of the water into wine. But as we pointed out before. You don't get uh, wine from water. Jesus eliminated the water. And he created wine. You see he is the creator God. What's the evidence? What's the proof? He creates and he created wine at this at this uh, wedding. What a what a drama that must have been! And then you move into chapter three, and you're introduced to a leading teacher in Israel, Nicodemus. You know, if anyone's going to heaven, it, it's Nicodemus, because uh, he keeps the law scrupulously. He is the one who, you know. Um, Is meticulous in his keeping of the law. And people looked at him and said, You know, if anyone's in front of the queue, it's Nicodemus. He is the one that's definitely, you know, in line for heaven. He knows so much stuff. And yet he comes to Jesus at night and he says, um, We can't get our head around you because no one can be doing the things that you're doing except God be with him. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Your goodness, your righteousness, your religion, your your learning counts for absolutely nothing. You need to be born again. You need to believe in who I am. As John summarizes it in that wonderful 16th verse of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, and that is always the operative word, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And so you go from, you're introduced to someone who's up here in society, the escalons of society, the one that everybody looked to and respected. You go from from that to someone's in the gutter of society when you go go into chapter four. And we find Jesus at a well. And at the well, he has this encounter with uh, a lady of uh, questionable uh, morals. She had five husbands. And the one that she's with at the moment isn't isn't her husband either. And as a result of the ensuing conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ, her life is absolutely transformed. And she runs back into the town from which she has come and she sets the place of light by, by by saying, come and see somebody who has told me everything that I have ever done. You see, friends, it's, it, it's drama, isn't it? Isn't it action? Isn't it activity? You go into chapter five, and Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda, and there an individual of thirty-eight years, enabled to get down into the water, in the hope that the stirring of the waters might have been a means of his healing. Jesus says to him, just take up your bed and walk. Wouldn't you love to have been around? Not only to see the man taking up his bed and walking, but to see the response of the people. You picture it, this man walking down the road. He's either trailing this bed behind him, or maybe he's just you know, rolled it up and put it under his arm and he's walking like he's heading to the beach. And for 38 years, he has just been lying there, an invalid, and people are saying to him, is that you? Are you the guy that had been lying there for 38 years? You look like him. Is it you? And he's explaining, yeah, it's me. I was that guy that was lying there for 38 years and they asked him, who made you to walk? The man says, I don't know because Jesus had actually just went off into the crowd. They meet later and Jesus says to him, look, you better knock that sinning on the head. And you get into chapter 6 following that drama and you have the feeding of the the 5,000. It's estimated that there's actually between fifteen to 20,000 people including women and children. And the disciples, well they're confronted with a bit of a conundrum because Jesus says you got to feed them. And they're saying to Jesus, well where are we going to get the food to feed this lot? There's no way that Uh, the food can be provided. But isn't there that little boy with the uh, five loaves and two fishes? But Jesus, what are you able to do with that? With this vast crowd? Well, he's God in the flesh, isn't he? And what does God do? What does God do for us every day? He provides. He provides for his creation. He oversees his creation. He's involved in his creation. And what does Jesus do with those loaves and fishes? He starts to break them. And as he breaks them, they multiply. And they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. All of this food for the feeding of this multitude with 12 baskets left over from the scraps that are gathered. Do you see the action? Do you see the drama? as John relates to us in this gospel, who this fascinating character is, and then you find yourself in chapter 7 and 8, Jesus at this Jewish feast, and the things that he's saying, the things that he's doing, the things that are said about him, just absolutely mind-blowing. Some of you may be saying, well, Billy, why are you doing this? Why this sort of... Uh, overview or panoramic view of the Gospel of John. Well, some folks may be visiting, maybe they haven't read John's Gospel. I open the Bible and I read from John 8 verse 51 and they rightly say, well, boy, where does that come from? What on earth is that all about? Well, Jesus is at this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, it was compulsory for a Jewish man over the age of 20 to show up at the feast. you know, Providing he was within 20 miles of uh, Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he uh, goes up to the feast. And there are two particular aspects of this feast that lasted over a number of days. Uh, one had to do with water. The, the bringing of uh, water in these huge pitchers. And they would be poured out um as symbolic of cleansing the cleansing that the uh, messiah would bring when he eventually comes and the the other had to do with um with light there were four huge candelabras that illuminated not only the temple precincts but spanned out and could be seen from a great distance and they would be lit at night. And it's during that feast that Jesus shouts. In fact, it was during the pinnacle of the feast when they're just about the, to pour out the water and the place is in silence. The high point that Jesus shouts out, John seven thirty seven. if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And perhaps the following evening when they're, you know, pulling these great candelabras into place and the temple is being illuminated. Jesus shouts, John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. My friends, Jesus... Jesus stands and he makes these claims during the feast. And still the reaction from the religious leaders is negative. The Pharisees are not pleased at all that at the pinnacle of the feast Jesus shouted out randomly about drinking from him. They're not happy that He's claiming to be the light of the world and as a result you can read this yourself in the text if you do your homework in John chapter 7 the religious leaders decide to dispatch the uh, Jewish officers the temple police to arrest Jesus and the officers return and the Pharisees say why don't you have Jesus in tow and they say never Never a man spoke like this man. My friends, these things John tells us at the end of his gospel. These things he says are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh. And that by believing you might have life. In his name. You know there's a well known statement by C.S. Lewis. In mere Christianity. Where he writes quote. In this section of my book. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things. That people say about Jesus. Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Writes Lewis, continuing the quote, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's poached egg or else he would be the devil incarnate now you must make your choice either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something else something worse you can shut him up for a fool you can spit Adam and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronising nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher he has not left that option open to us end of quote and here in John 8, 51, still within the context of this feast, Jesus stands and makes another amazing statement. If, if he says, anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, he's really rattled them with these statements really rattled the jewish leaders because after all they as far as they're concerned they are all children of israel they don't need anything else by virtue of their birth they are already on the right side of the equation and they say to jesus we we are actually free which was a bit ironic because they were under the yoke of human uh, roman occupation but you know they they said you know we are we are free and Jesus points out to them in a very clever way, a very sincere way, and in a very necessary way, that freedom, which they need, which we all need. Freedom is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Freedom. Everybody longs for freedom in one way or another. And Jesus is speaking about freedom that only he can provide. A freedom from sin. A freedom from emptiness. A freedom from meaninglessness. You know, people are totally honest about things. Every so often they find themselves either on a pleasant afternoon or a rainy Tuesday sitting with a cup of tea in their hands or a cup of coffee and saying, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Where am I going? What happens when I draw my last breath? What comes after that I mean, for those of you who are old enough to remember and were into it, Janice Joplin sang in 71, me and Bobby McGee. With the strapline chorus, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom ain't worth nothing if it ain't free. Feeling good was easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. You know, feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and Bobby McGee. Do you think Janice Chaplin longed for freedom? Trapped in her drug fueled life, used and abused by men, a young life snuffed out and extinguished at the young age of 27, who gives freedom? The Lord Jesus Christ gives freedom. Freedom to know liberation from pain, from decay, from death, from sin, from slavery to sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from a guilty conscience. But instead of those amazing pleas On Jesus' part, instead of those amazing pleas, arousing curiosity on the part of the people that he spoke to, they decide we will have absolutely nothing to do with it. And so you find that it descends in the name-calling. Jesus, you're just a Samaritan. Jesus, you're crazy. Jesus, you're possessed by a demon. I mean, think about that for a moment. They don't realize who they're talking to. The one that they are speaking to and calling a demon is the one who created them. The prologue of John's gospel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. There was nothing made that was not made by him. Jesus, the creator God, is looking at these characters eye to eye, and he's looking at us, In the eye this morning. Because he is the risen Christ. And he is looking at us. And he's saying you know if you would but pay attention. To what I'm saying to you. You will never see death. He has come into the world on a mission from the father so that men and women, young boys, young girls, would not perish but have eternal life. Not see death. As I start, just to draw this to a close, bear with me for a couple of moments, because not only do I need to clarify what is meant by Jesus' words, but also something needs to be said about the nature of death itself. What the Bible teaches enables us to understand death. All of us know certain things about death. We know death is inevitable. We know death is unavoidable. We know that it's inescapable. To deny that is to deny the reality that is before us. Our world is full of cemeteries. Like it or not, one out of one dies. At the same time, we have to acknowledge, especially in the light of the word of God, that death itself is unnatural. It's unpleasant. It's undignified. Unnatural, unpleasant, undignified. Undignified. Unpleasant. Unnatural. Why is it unnatural? Well, we weren't created to die so what happened well genesis chapter 3 sin entered a perfect world our first parents rebelled and we contracted from them an infection a disease that uh, was passed from them to us disease called sin you say but that's not fair whether it's fair or not it's fact We are born sin-dependent. We're born alienated from God, separated from God. We're born running from God. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they died spiritually to God immediately. God comes in the garden and he says to Adam, where are you? It's not that he didn't know where Adam was, but he's Posing the question to Adam, where are you now in relationship to me? You know, yesterday we were walking together in the cool of the day. We were communing. We had fellowship. Where's that now that you've sinned? Where are you in relationship to me? You're dead to me, Adam. That's what he is saying. Their physical death obviously came later but Adam and Eve disobeyed God and condemnation came upon all of us that's why we die Romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death you know sin pays wages what wages does it pay well it pays out in death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord death is the penalty for sin life eternal life everlasting life is the wonderful wonderful gift that God gives to us through his son Jesus Christ now what Jesus is doing here he's addressing the spiritually dead that are not yet physically dead so that by the repenting of their sin and believing And trusting in him and keeping his word, they might never see eternal death. He's speaking to the spiritually dead this morning before they see physical death. He's making this huge appeal. And I ask you, who else, who else, come on, can make such an appeal? Who else can make such a claim? So it comes down to you this morning. What's your response to this? Come on, are you just going to dismiss it as crazy? Are you just going to dismiss Jesus as some megalomaniac? You're going to dismiss Jesus as someone who's just out for himself? Come on, examine Christ. Examine the details. not out for himself he dies on a cross because he's not out for himself in fact his death on the cross makes possible the life that he's talking about because the separation between ourselves and god that has to be bridged that alienation Has to be reconciled. How are we ever going to be reconciled to God, the Creator, who calls to us, who makes us appeal? That's why Jesus came. Why He went to the cross. To bridge that gap between ourselves and God as He hangs on the cross. And He calls men and women to Himself to repent of their sin. And He dies on the cross. It's a miracle because only sinners die and Jesus never sinned. So why did he die? Because he bore our punishment. Our sin was laid on him. And when they take him down lifeless from that cross and bury him in the tomb. What's the proof that he just wasn't from the line of natural Adam but he was the second Adam. The fact that he rose again three days later, victoriously from the grave. That's what's going to be pictured in Reuben's baptism. Death and resurrection. As Reuben comes down into the water, comes down into the grave and goes on to the water, it's like a picture of death. Dying with Christ, identifying with Christ. And, as he comes up out of the water, picturing the newness of life, picturing the resurrection, and the baptism just simply pictures what has taken place in his life already he 's not being baptized to be born again he's being, he is born again, and to show that visibly we show that in baptism, and that 's what 's pictured and so Jesus presents to each of us this morning this appeal that that if you come to him, he will never turn you away. That if you repent of your sin, he will bring you into the household of faith and he will set his banner over you, which says, Love. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he will give you that life that is worth living. Amen.